Welcome to episode 78 of See Here Podcast. We're part of the Pantheon Network. My name is Morris, and over in Bath, we have my good friend and colleague, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good morning. It's, uh, it's morning here for a change. It's normally night when we record, but I'm up early on a Sunday today. Indeed, we might have to keep this sort of thing going if it works better. Yeah, I don't know about that, but <laughs> we'll see. We're very sorry to report that our great friend and compadre, Mr. Tim Merrill, is not available for this episode. He's working in studying very very hard we love you tim all the best and hopefully you're back with us for next month's episode of the show bernie and i we've carried on regardless we've just finished recording an interview with a wonderful fellow named rob curry now rob and his partner tim plester have been making a few films over the last few years and we focus in this episode on two of them in particular. One's called The Ballad of Shirley Collins and the other one's called Southern Journey Revisited. And we had to focus on both of them because they are inexorably linked. We speak a lot during the interview about our thoughts and about politics and about the history of folk music. Southern Journey Revisited is his latest film, which he'll describe at the end of the interview where you can see it. And that one is about a journey that Tim and Rob took through the southern states of America during the 2018 midterm elections in the US, following the path that Alan Lomax and Shirley Collins, renowned English folk singer, had made back in 1959 to see what was the America of 2018, or rather, what were the people who lived in those regions that Alan Lomax and Shirley Collins had travelled through what were the people who were there like? What were their lives like? How had the music affected? How was 2018 America affecting them? So it's a film of personal politics as well as a film of music. And The Ballad of Shirley Collins is not your out-and-out biopic or your out-and-out musical documentary. There's so much more to it than that. I mean, we go through this more in the interview, but... Bernie, your initial thoughts after seeing these films? They're both fantastic. It's, it's funny, I watched The Ballad of Shirley Collins first, and I enjoyed it, but I wasn't blown away. And then watching Southern Journey Revisited, and as you say, there's strands from the first film which definitely lead into Southern Journey Revisited, and um, it kind of reframed how I looked at the first film as well. Southern Journey Revisited particularly, I think, is absolutely fantastic, but watching them together, they complement each other so much and both great films. Yeah, absolutely. As you indicate, they're two really great films and two very, very important films. They can be seen completely independently of the 2020 election that we're 10 days away from as we're recording this podcast. But really interesting to watch them in the context of what is happening now in the US. So however this turns out, we really urge you to search out these films, either through cinema screenings or VOD, whenever they get made available. So we're going to go now to our interview with Rob Curry after playing you the trailer for the film Southern Journey Revisited. We'll be back at the end of our interview to talk with what's going to be happening in episode 79 of See Here. WMMT. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody else to, to, to get in. I'm being interviewed right now. Yeah, I'm being interviewed. Uh, who are you all? 
<laughs> we're happy, Mr. Lomax, to have you in our home and we're secretary with you. It's a pleasure to have you and to entertain you in our home. Well, I've been a long way away for eight years, and I feel like this is my real welcome home, although I've been back in the United States for a year. It's kind of cold and chilly up in the north sometimes, not only in temperature, but in the way people act, and I feel like I've really come home. Things are probably more divided now, in a way, than they were then. You got an audience. <laughs> it's complex. You can't pigeonhole. Back then, when people sung songs, it's like they sung from their heart. He sat right down there on the left with his recording instruments. He's a writer, man. Today, more than ever, relevant. A man went looking for America and couldn't find it nowhere. Everyone, pretty nice people like like me. <laughs> Thank you for coming, guys. Thank you for blessing my day. Good trip. Crystal, I'm trying to film because these people, it's they're doing this documentary on my family and stuff like that. <laughs> so quit trying to call me. I'll call you later. You go to play something down back to see how they sound? It's going to sound fine. Mm -hmm. It's going to sound fine. Okay. Shirley, it's quite exciting to be sleeping here in this living room. Shirley, you're my reason to get out of bed before noon. Shirley, Welcome back to episode 78 of See Here Podcast. And Bernie and I are really, really thrilled to have a director on the show. We love getting film directors. We love getting filmmakers on this program. We love to find out about the creative process, but we have something really super special for you. On the other end of the Skype connection, we have from, I'm not sure, even London, Mr. Rob Curry, the director of two superb films that we want to discuss with him on this show, Southern Journey Revisited, which has just come out this year. And The Ballad of Shirley Collins, which is 2018, if I'm correct? Yeah, 1718. Yep. That came out, yeah. Normally, we'd just be focusing on the one film when speaking to a director such as yourself. And the original plan was to be speaking just about Southern Journey Revisited. But after having watched your earlier film, The Ballad of Shirley Collins we realize that these two films are super intertwined and there's just so much ground that's to be yeah. covered over both. The obvious starting point would be to find out where was your love of folk music when you were growing up? Did your parents have Shirley Collins music in the house? Were you listening to Fairport Convention? Were you listening to more traditional stuff? Where did your love come in? So there's a silent partner in this podcast, which is my co-director, Tim Plester, who isn't here. And he very much had that upbringing that you're talking about. He was the kid who was force-fed 
progressive folk music in the car <laughs> on the way to football matches and, and stuff like that and then sort of roundly rejected it as a teenager so I knew what folk music was on one level because I grew up in a very Irish area of London folk music has something that people played that wasn't like a commercial thing was something that I knew about but I didn't even think of it as folk music and I guess I guess in Ireland you don't really call it folk music either it's just traditional music I didn't listen to folk music at all until yeah, probably my late teens. I basically listened to 80s punk as a teenager and somehow slowly kind of made a line back through Patti Smith to like Neil Young and then to Bob Dylan. On one strand, as close to kind of anything you would call traditional folk music as I got as a teenager. Although on the other hand, there was a, the whole kind of Pogues, Levelers side of punk that was probably more familiar to me at that age. The Levelers, not so much, but the Pogues definitely sort of stand as one of the great bands. And then somehow in my 20s, I then discovered these really, really old recordings, which kind of really kind of resonated to me. And they really felt almost like punk music, but played on acoustic instruments, you know, because they, they were all recorded in people's living rooms. They were kind of scratchy, but like the sound quality was for some reason really good. And I didn't really think about what they were or where they came from, but I was just really glad that I'd found them and they kind of filled a gap in my life in some sort of way and then Oh Brother Where Out Thou came out and I found that the soundtrack to that film was inspired by these recordings that I'd been listening to again sort of in a very dissociated way I'd sort of started with a group of friends going around weird English folk festivals not connected to music in any way to be honest just sort of like let's go to that place where they roll burning tar barrels down the road let's go to the place where they burn effigies of American presidents on bonfire night let's go to that place where they roll a cheese down a hill mm-hmm. and people always end up in hospital. Let's go to the place where they, they roll a pee along the road with their nose and see who wins. You know, I'd always worked in theatre and then I'd sort of started trying to work in film. And then one of the people that I went to these folk events with said, oh, so he had a kind of guilty secret, which was that his family, he's from one of those villages. And that was Tim, you know, my co-director, who at that time wasn't my co-director, it was just a guy I went around festivals with. And he's from a Morris dancing family. And so we started going to his village, to the weird English folk festival in his village. And then basically his uncle suggested that someone come with them when they go on this trip to France. And we were asking what the trip was about. And basically they had found the graves of all the Morris dancers from their village who died in the First World War, which had led to the tradition of dying out in their village until his uncle and, you know, various other people revived it in the 70s. And they wanted someone to come along and document it. And that then turned into our first film, which was basically about Morris dancing. You know, it's like probably the only film in the history of British TV or cinema that has taken Morris dancing seriously. In the beginning when all was yet new and still wet. It is said that old Mr. Fox helped dance the world into being, for red foxes love to dance, and the great mystery, alone in the vast skycloth above, knew this to be true. It was a punchline in a Black Adder episode. It's a punchline in everything. Vicar of Dibley. I mean, yeah, Richard Curtis uses Morris dancing all the time, but it, I mean, absolutely everything. There is actually one very weird early Doctor Who 
that has kind of Morris dancing aliens, which is a really, really <laughs> phenomenally good episode if you can if you can track it down. Right. So, and that, that worked really well, you know. The clown concept with, with horror films always works really well, but people should do more of that, actually. Morris dancing horror films. So, yeah, I started going to this festival, and then we made this film, and that film just inexplicably did incredibly well. It's like, it was 63 minutes long, got selected for a really good festival, South by Southwest. And then off the back of that, we started getting calls from cinemas going oh our local Morris dancing team has contacted us and said there's this film out can we show it and we were like well you can but it's like it's 63 minutes long are you sure you want to and they were like yeah 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 and before long we had quite a few of those uh, we then approached a couple of the kind of independent chains and they took it on as well and we ended up having like a 40 screen release for this completely self-shot 63 minute film about Morris dancing. It kind of showed us the power of like having a niche market. Mm -hmm. If you've got a subject that really, really matters to a small group of people, that can drive a release for you in the way that if you make a very generalized film that just happens to be really good, no one gives a shit. You know, within the independent cinema world anyway. So that did really, really well. You know, so then we were making films about folk tradition, following on from our interest in folk festivals. And then that sort of then just sort of grew from there. And then someone approached us to make a film about Shirley Collins, who had seen Way of the Morris and loved it, which then really helped with kind of getting her to agree to make a film with us. And we discovered that all this music that I discovered in my 20s, those kind of scratchy recordings that I was talking about, she'd been on the trip to record that music <laughs> kind of thing. We had absolutely no idea. You know, I, I sort of, by then I knew who Alan Lomax was. I kind of had a vague idea about song collecting. Tim had kind of reconnected with the kind of the modern strands of folk music from like Devendra Banhart and whatever. But you can see a lineage back to that music that his parents used to listen to. And that was then like, right, okay, this is an amazing opportunity to A, kind of put Shirley back at the centre of the story of collecting those because she'd sort of been written out of the history of that song collecting trip but while making a film about this singer who's lost their voice that in itself seemed an interesting thing to make a film about as like someone who's living without the thing that defines them put those two together and this, it was like okay there's a film here let's make a film about Shirley Collins that's not an answer to your question but yeah. um, it's, a, it's a bloody good answer anyway <laughs> yeah it ties your question to the film anyway <laughs> so I, I was curious Rob I mean from what you're saying it is fairly self-apparent but when you were making the Shirley Collins film yeah I assume that kind of led naturally to you then making Southern Journey? Was there other yeah. stuff that you became aware of as you were making the Shirley Collins film that made you think well I can go in a slightly different direction here because I think what you do brilliantly in Southern Journey, the music's almost just a framework to lay everything else on top of and it's all about politics and family and community and so on I assume that opened up whilst you were making the Shirley Collins film? I mean absolutely yeah, we can get onto that in a bit where the kind of the continuity between being into punk as a teenager and you know having an interest in folk as an adult is that both of those forms of music are about community and kind of politics (laughs) and society rather than about record sales and music videos and record labels etc etc in prep for this i also watched a film i've been meaning to watch for a long while but Finally, now I had a really, definitely a good reason, which was the documentary that you were co-director on, The Chills, The Triumph and Tragedy of Martin Phillips. And (laughs) on the surface, it seems like The Chills film and the two folk films have almost naught in common. But I thought what really blew my mind 
in the sense that the Chills film and really any documentary about a contemporary pop musician, it's all about the musician's success. It's something to do with the cult of personality. We listen to this musician in a pop sense because it's that musician. We don't want to hear someone do a cover of it. Whereas in folk music, we're dealing with hundreds of years old songs. It's always about someone doing a cover or doing a new interpretation of that song. It was really interesting that you went from taking this approach where it was a film purely about Martin to making these other films where, I mean, okay, you know, Shirley Collins is about her, but it's as much about these traditional songs. It's less about the artist. We don't care that it's Shirley Collins doing these 500-year-old songs where if, if we hear that someone is doing... I don't know, a Sex Pistols song or a Billy Bragg song in a bar, then it's not the original. I don't want to hear them doing it. Yeah, I don't think I ever thought it through in quite that way, actually. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, the Chills are not as well known as they should be, but um, really influential indie bands from the 1980s. So actually probably close to the sort of music I listened to as a teenager. And I did listen Mm -hmm. to the Chills and I went to see the Chills with the Hoodoo Gurus, one of the best gigs of my life. And I, I tried to push the Chills film as far into being a band where Martin was from as opposed to what he's done as I could but you know within a format where you had to do more what was required in a music documentary while with the Ballad of Shelley Collins and certainly with something Jenny revisited we had a lot more freedom to kind of really move away from that Shelley despises the written song as she calls it you know she's got just got no interest at all it's all swings and roundabouts she does actually sing some songs where you know there's some songs where they've got the words and she has to put a tune to it so she'll try and find a traditional tune that fits and then or there'll be a traditional tune that um, someone's written new words to and she'll sing that because folk is an evolving format and for all her kind of on the face of it rigor and rigidity about not singing written songs as she calls them her songs are very very clearly evolutions you know and they always have been through her now what is it 50 years 60 years of recording 63 years of recording music the way that her songs sound is not the way they sounded 100 years ago and she always has very very groundbreaking instrumentation but she just keeps the singing itself very very simple but also yeah you know what she's interested in it was the people that have passed down the song so in a way to make a conventional biopic about Shelley Collins would not have been right because that's not what she's about and that's not what she's interested in you know and so the film is always going to be about the people that have passed the music on music down to her and then sort of trying to show how that then she's then a conduit to pass that on to the next generation yeah yeah you know I mean they, they are very different and I hadn't consciously thought through what you said earlier Quite silent, each mortal at rest. When me and my true love lay snug in one nest, and a set of bold refuge. I mean, you can link this to the Morris dancing film as well. There's obviously an underlying theme in all your stuff about community, isn't there? As you were saying. And I guess, like you were saying as well, it's if, if you make a, a more specialist film aimed at a more specialist audience, you are aiming and tapping into that community as well, aren't you? It's an important thing that binds us all together, isn't it? Absolutely, you know, and I think it, we definitely did not make Where the Morris for Morris dancers. Sure. That film is made with that in mind, yeah, yeah. Dancers, and quite consciously and self-consciously so. And quite a lot of 
Shirley Collins fans mm-hmm. don't particularly love the Ballad of Shirley Collins. I mean, I, I'm not sure that's true, actually, but there are ones who like, why don't you have songs from this album? And why don't you talk about that album? Etc., etc., etc. And would have liked a conventional biopic of Shirley that just ran through her albums in order, mm. you know, a, a bit like a sort of best of Wikipedia type thing, which is what a music documentary quite often is. And, and the Chills film is definitely kind of going in that direction, which is not a problem. It's a much bigger budget affair and, you mm. know, there's all sorts of vested interests involved in it. But again, I try to push that as far from that as possible. Yeah, that's what makes the Ballad of Shirley Collins and Southern Journey so interesting is that you're just not doing that straightforward biopic. Yeah. You are pushing it in other directions and taking other things on board. And I'm sure Morris feels the same way, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's I'd much rather watch something interesting like that because it's a little bit more about you as well than it is just the straightforward A to exactly. B, as I mean, it were, you know? I don't think there's any point making a film for fans of an artist because mm. those fans already know they like the artist. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and ultimately the music is what matters if you make that sort of film all you can really do is provide context to the music you're not doing anything else you're not doing anything new you're just adding to someone's enjoyment of appreciation or understanding of an artist that they already know rather than trying to do something more than that like you know like Battle of the Shirley Collins we're kind of grappling with English identity the last year of making it was during the height of the Brexit era so that seemed like sure, a really yeah. important to be looking at and Southern Journey is maybe kind of of trying to make people think again about their stereotypes and preconceptions about the southern USA, you know, mm-hmm. as we had to in the making of it. I certainly want to come back to that whole notion about the stereotypes of the southern part of the USA because that's explicitly spoken about by one of the musicians in the film. Yes. I definitely want to come back to that. Sort of taking on board what you just said about when you made the Shirley Collins documentary. Yeah. And you said it was made during the height of Brexit, and that didn't even occur to me. There's no explicit notion of that within the film, but do you think that in any context it affected how you made the film? I think what it affected was we had an awareness when we were in the edit. We were still shooting a little bit. It took four years to film that and shoot that to make that film because the story kept changing. It went from being about a singer who couldn't sing to a singer who was trying to sing again. You know, so suddenly you've Mm. got a narrative to follow. But yes, uh, I mean, absolutely. I think it was like, like, we didn't want Shirley Collins on screen listening to the radio as the Brexit results came in. (laughs) But very much, I think it was how in this, context can we present a positive vision of Englishness Mm -hmm. and that was very very much at at the forefront of our minds on a very superficial level she's not even proud of being English she's proud of being from Sussex and she's not even proud of being from Sussex she's proud of being from East Sussex so superficially it's it's as reductive a viewpoint Mm. as you can have but actually it's a very holistic it's a very open it's a very understanding it's a very tolerant viewpoint but within this love of your community or your neighborhood or your identity or your culture you know or your class as well for Shirley come in come in your true love won't you chat for a while with me I think it's very telling in your film because it starts and ends on presumably the same moment where she's going to what's presumably in East Sussex, a local bonfire, and she's singing. Not singing as Shirley Collins' 
folk recording artist. She's just another person there, and it comes back to the love of the song and the love of community. That was a really great framing device because they have this incredible bonfire tradition in Lewis, which is the town that she lives in. The film starts with her at the Lewis bonfire celebrations, not being able to sing, and then it follows her through a sort of a fiction, semi-fictional year and ends up with her back there singing kind of mm-hmm. thing. There's lots of kind of cycles in that film and kind of people returning to points where they were before. And because that, that's another thing about kind of folk tradition and community. And, you know, it's not a linear thing. It's a cyclical thing, like the seasons, mm-hmm. you know, like the harvest that comes back around every year. It's all a connection to something that we've kind of lost because we see everything in terms of progress and in terms of reaching a goal, which is over there rather Straight than somewhere we've been. There's no point me pointing because this is a podcast. We saw you do it. I just wanted to ask you, Rob, still about Ballad of Shirley Collins, some of the stylistic choices you made, particularly your decision to, I say you, you and Tim as well, yeah, yeah. your decision to recreate Shirley and Alan Lomax's sort of journey and you actually used actors in the film. I mean, I'll be honest with you, it took me about half the film before I twigged that wasn't actually archive footage. Yeah, well, It was so, I mean, so well done. I didn't work it out till the end credits oh wow okay but yeah i'm just i'm, I'm curious uh, sort of why you decided to do that i thought it was very effective but it's, it's an interesting choice we knew that there was an archive video we knew that they had taken along a stills camera an slr and there were loads of photos of the trip so there was loads of source material in terms of filming stuff we also had this incredible audio archive so that again going back to that music that i got into in my 20s you know they recorded hundreds of hours of that music and when they came back from the trip in 59 and within two years they'd released 10 lps worth of music it's only about 10 percent of what's in that archive and most of what's in the archive that really appealed to us is not people singing or performing but people talking so we knew that we had all of that stuff that we wanted to dramatize somehow we had enough budget wise to, to do that and that just seemed the best way of kind of transporting people to that time. We took like each of the photos of like the key scenes that we wanted to do and we used them to kind of create the backdrop and, you know, for costumes and to find instruments that matched with the visuals. And then we set ourselves the task, again, we're talking about this circular thing, of finding somewhere in Sussex <laughs> where you could film something yeah. that looked vaguely like the Mississippi Delta. <laughs> That just amazed me at the end credits where it says all the recreations were filmed in Sussex. Yeah. I was like, what? So there's just, yeah, amazing. That was a lot of fun. It was kind of the idea that we would reveal as the film went on that that's what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a big sequence. In a cinema, it's pretty clear. There's a final sequence where the Shirley Collins from the archive comes to Shirley Collins in Lewis's house. Mm-hmm. Now, in a cinema, you know, with a big screen, it's re- it's really, really clear what's going on. You start to see modern cars around the Buick, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, but on a small screen, it, sometimes people don't actually figure out even. Well, is, that is that that's the sequence where it goes from black and white to color? Yes. Yeah. 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 And then we played around with it because when we did test screenings, the first test screening, some people weren't getting it. And right. we were like, do we need to make, really, really spell this out and make it clear? And then, and then we were sort of like, well, you know, what? let different people have a different experience. If you're allowing people to experience your film in different ways, you actually aren't in control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, so as a director, is that something that's that you should be doing, or you know, does it just mean you haven't done your job very well? But we quite like that. <laughs> So, so we left it that way, which was sometimes I think was a mistake. But yeah, it, it would have, so. we would have had to ruin the poetry to, to, <laughs> to, to 
really kind of nail it down so we went with the purge i confess that the only shirley collins album that i have is and i'm suspecting that this is her most famous one the album that she did folk roots new roots with david graham so my knowledge of her was just that association with david graham who's one of my favorite guitar players ever i was re-listening to it again over the last week and if you look at the song listing credits, it says such and such song in the style of whatever singer. And there's the song Bad Girl, uh, which yeah. name checks Texas Gladden. One morning, one morning, one morning in May, I met this young lady wrapped up in. And all of a sudden, boom, I thought, oh, now I know who that name is because Texas Gladden is a large part of the story in Southern Journey Revisited. But she is name-checked in the Shirley Collins doc as well. And I think like, at one point they said that she knew 385 songs of British descent. Yeah. When you were filming her, was she a walking jukebox? Was she like Texas Gladden? Had she learnt like a whole lot of American songs as well as English songs. She's got an encyclopedic knowledge of traditional music, yeah, you know, and traditional English music and traditional songs that have a connection with Sussex as well. But, you know, she really didn't sing when we started making the Ballad of Shady Collins, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like she was going around humming tune and singing to us. There was this big gap in her life, this thing that was missing. It was more sort of almost academic. Uh, connection which you know happily now is is no longer academic at one part in the film there's that discussion between Shirley and I'm sorry I don't remember the fellow's name but he was like a psychologist and a music fan and he's sort of like asking her questions to try and see if he can unravel why and she fully acknowledges that it's a psychological thing because of her marriage breakup with Ashley Hutchings of Steel I Span how was he brought into the film did she say I need to see someone or did someone suggest it how did he come about we didn't want to interview her in any sort of conventional way for the film we thought we knew what the kind of aspects of her life that we wanted to deal with were and then we thought of someone that we could film in conversation with her to deal with each of those aspects so the Stuart Lee talking to her about the politics of the 50s folk revival and then there's Sam Amadon talking to her about the American music etc at one point there was going to be a much bigger medical angle to it we were talking about getting MRI scans and seeing someone at Imperial College to look at her voice and really explore why she couldn't sing and there was going to be quite a big bit in that when when she couldn't sing you know so by the end of the film we'd really explored why she couldn't sing I guess that was like a hangover from that so we we don't need to do that because you're singing again now it would still be good to have like someone professional explore why you couldn't sing for that period rather than it just being very yeah just have someone who's you know that's their job and that's what they know about that can talk to her about it in a medical way so did you find that the film was built more in the editing room because like when you obviously started making the film you didn't know that it was going to go in that direction I mean, we filmed very, very clear scenes that had a very, very clear purpose. It's almost the opposite of Southern Journey revisited in that way. Everything was filmed for a reason. And then as it went on, that got more and more toned down. And and all the reconstruction stuff was very clearly, right, this singer was significant for this reason. We're going to use this bit of archive, so let's film stuff to go over that. Then we'd bring in someone to talk about an aspect that we hadn't covered yet. It evolved, but luckily, because we weren't making it for TV or whatever, we had the ability to evolve with it but everything was quite considered because every time we went to film was like 
almost a thousand pounds or more for the day. So we had to know why we were doing it rather than just randomly go and film stuff. I mean, we did find the shape of the film in the edit, but it had been thought out. We sort of haven't touched on so much on Southern Journey. We, <laughs> yeah. we promise we, we're going to do that. But I do have one, unless Bernie has something else. I do have one final point I sort of wanted to refer to about the Shirley Collins doc. There was a moment late in the film, once she's recording her new album at the time. So she sings this song, Cruel Lincoln. Said the Lord to his lady, I am now going out. Be aware of cruel Lincoln who lives by the gate. What care I for Lincoln or any of his kin? My doors are all bolted and the windows are pinned. Which I knew many years ago from its more rocked-up interpretation by Steel I Span uh, as yeah. Long Lankin. What I found really interesting was Shirley discussing the song before she actually goes over to sing it. And, like, I always just sort of thought it was this murder ballad. This guy comes into this house and murders this lord's wife and child. But her description of it was that it was based on the story of it was a craftsman of some sort and he'd done this work for this lord who refused to pay and just took the goods and so all of a sudden it comes from being purely a murder ballad where you just think this guy's a bastard to being a song about class distinction. Yeah, yeah. Now, we know that modern folk music from the likes of Woody Guthrie and Billy Bragg, if you will, is often about songs about class, but how much... I don't know if this is more a song for your partner, Tim, but how much are you aware of the old English folk songs being a a lot about class distinction? Well, I mean, they're about class identity, definitely. If you want to understand the, like, the Victorian or the Georgian white working class experience that is your best source that's the best place to go to understand it you know and that's what Shirley is channeling you know she can trace one side of it back you know centuries in Sussex they've all been like people who worked on the land worked on big estates worked on the sea long back as you can go and that's really really important to her and that's why the music matters to her and that's kind of why the music matters as well actually and that song in particular that song's got all sorts of I think it's the most important song on that album her comeback album you know it's a song about someone who goes someone who hasn't been paid so they go and they kill someone's wife and baby and then mutilate their daughter but then they and the maid who let him let them into the house are hanged when the lord comes back and yeah you know in the steel ice band version he is the baddie definitely and he gets his comeuppance but it's not it's nowhere near as straightforward as that you not go and murder that you know <laughs> smash their baby's brains out on, but but anyway um you get the point and and so it's, and that and the way that she sings kind of doesn't really put any judgment at all into it it just presents you with a story and then you have to decide who's morally right and who's morally wrong it's a really brilliant song and and go and check it out on Shirley's album Lodestar it's pretty chilling <laughs> in the fire close by shall be hanged on the gallows so high 
Rob, let's talk about Southern Journey Revisited. As I uh, sort of mentioned earlier, that there's definitely a sort of line between the Shirley Collins film and this. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of developed and the approach you took with the film, the framework of the film? Yeah, making the Ballad of Shirley Collins, we then spent months with this massive archive of music that she recorded with Alan Lomax in 1959. So we knew that really, really well. And although we did do all that reconstruction stuff of that 1959 trip in the Ballad of Shirley Collins, there had been a time before we thought she was going to sing again that we were talking about maybe going back there with her and seeing how it had changed from now and seeing if we could find residues of the music there still now as there had been then. Um, But that sort of became increasingly redundant as she started to sing. So then we always had it in the back of our mind that this could potentially be an interesting thing because that trip in 59 was really, really interesting because they were going into communities where civil rights activists were being lynched. But because they were going in there to record music, even though there was a political angle to what they were doing, people were very welcoming and very open and not at all guarded. And so we sort of knew if we went back there to do the same thing, that we might get a similar response. The way the film came about was just incredibly opportunistic because the Ballad of Shelley Collins had its UK release and it had been in like lots of... It'd been in Rotterdam and CPH Docks and London and, you know, done, done a lot of festivals. And then it came through an American release and we're like, well, let's do, we have to do something newsworthy because it's just so impossible in America. It's like this sort of impenetrable wall of content that you've somehow got to find a way through. So we're like, well, why don't we retrace the route of the Southern Journey with a sort of screening tour? Oh, wow, um, okay. That's how that started. It's like, so, so us basically booking a screening tour of Southern Journey that we could then go and do Q&As along with like a three-hour, well, three to eight-hour drive <laughs> between venues. I mean, no, actually, it was pretty thoroughly researched. And then try and show the film in as many of the places they recorded as we could. And then once that was arranged and was sort of paying for itself, we were like, well, why don't we take a camera as well when we did it? So we got a guy called Damien from New York, who's a self-shooter, to come down with a camera and a B camera for me to use really badly uh, and sound recording gear and got in a car and just drove the route of the Southern Journey, stopping to film, getting up in the morning, going and filming stuff, getting in the car, driving to our Q&A, getting there by the skin of our teeth finding the hotel for the night, getting up the next morning and doing the same thing. And that's how that film was made, you know? So it was completely, wow. completely opportunistic. That's um, amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, so I think that sort of, Sorry, and we on. sort of decided to embrace that in the kind of presentation style because it's really, really very different to Bella Shirley Collins, which yes, is, you know, yeah. beautifully yeah. filmed and very composed and very structured. While this was like, Let's get up in the morning and see what we find today. So um, it, it feels like that, but in the best way, in, in, in yeah. a lot of cases, it feels like you're literally just pointing a camera at someone and then they're just giving you gold, basically. Yeah. Right? Some people we were literally with for 20 minutes. The one stereotype of the South that proved to be true is just how open and friendly and welcoming and hospitable people are. Well, isn't yeah, that so. great that that is the stereotype yeah. that's true? That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, woke up this morning with my mind. Jesus. 
So that film was political, but more, I think, in a personal way, rather than being about right and left ideology. And yeah. I did hear you say in another interview that basically sort of avoided, well, at least for the film, speaking with anyone who was overtly right or left. You did say like about a third of the people who you spoke to in the film were Trump supporters and two-thirds were not. But overall, this is more like a film about people's lives. And I found some of the politics to be really quite positive. There's that moment in the film where you speak to that fellow who worked at the radio station and he said, well, it's mm -hmm. not just about presenting radio. They had uh, like a women's health center. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that setup was amazing. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. It was all about what can we do for our local community? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that place, Apple Shop, is sort of, again, we literally had a screening there. That's why we did it. But that's like a right. sort of a social project in like in the most deprived kind of area of Kentucky. It's a kind of an art centre, but that kind of plays this massive role in the community. And it's kind of was set up along liberal progressive values in the 1960s and, and has really sort of transformed the area. There's amazing things like that. Every, yeah, everywhere needs an Apple shop. All the Trump supporters we talked to, we put their views in the film. You know, it's like we didn't set out not to talk to them. We didn't really come across anyone who wanted to just rant at us about immigrants yeah. or whatever, or, you know, because that's just not the reality. That's what is jumped on and presented, you know, as a kind of way of reducing debate, I guess. You Sound know. bites were something, isn't it? Yeah. There's a sort of conversation between the young sort of pagan yeah. lady as she yeah. introduces herself. And I don't know if that guy was like a cousin of hers or something yeah, with yeah, the, the is, star yeah. tattoo on his neck he's a republican and she's a democrat but they're just having this really yeah sort of reasonable reasons discussion yeah. about why they feel yeah. how they feel i mean that was just great to see people discussing politics like that on that level because it is a personal level you know and that yeah. really came across we really just wanted to just let people speak for themselves you know sure um, yeah but if i have an agenda it is that the people aren't the problem People are never the problem. It's other things that manipulate and control. And if you can strip all of that away and just talk to someone on a human level, then that family is a brilliant example of that. You know, they have everything that's properly radical. Like like the old guys, I hope this reads for people who haven't seen the film, but there's these couple of old, really, really rabid far left of Bernie Sanders Democrats in the yeah, film. Yeah. And one of them is the guy who in those famous photos of Kent State University where someone's throwing a, a petrol bomb at police, he's the guy in that photo. No oh way! My God. Oh, that's insane. <laughs> but, but alongside that, they've got very, very Christian, very Republican members in that family yeah. as well. These are the descendants of Texas Gladden, right? Yeah, these are all the descendants of Texas Gladden. Oh, they are here around me, cold waters gliding down the stream. Oh, in my sleep, I think I'll find it. So we're not going to see them because they're a family that's like a microcosm of the United States. And it's yeah. sort of, you can almost kind of reflect the civil war divide between the North and the South and, and all of that sort of stuff. We're going to see them because they happen to be this obscure ballad singer's descendants. That's just you know? incredible and, that and it worked out like that. And the just comes out of that. That, I think, is the beauty of the film for me. The very opening of the film where you're sort of setting things up, telling what it is that the film is going to be about, the writing on the screen. You mentioned, and I didn't know this, that Alan Lomax had been out of the country for many years during the McCarthyist era. Mm. So was he potentially targeted by HUAC? Or yeah. Oh, wow. 
Was he targeted because the Lomaxes had that association with Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger? Yeah, that's what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about they were going into areas where civil rights activists were being lynched. Kind of progressive strand of the song collecting community was really, really caught up with the civil rights movement and connected with the Communist Party of America, very much about kind of social justice and progress. And then they became the target of the McCarthyists as much as as much as the film producers. Now, Lomax probably would have been fine if he stayed in America. He wasn't like a member of the Communist Party, but, you know, he felt the need to be out of the country for a decade. So that tells you how serious he is. And yeah, and another thing, that intro was the, the very last thing we did after when we realised we made a film about this song collecting trip. And even though there's lots of recordings from that song collecting trip in it, and there's kind of juxtapositions of the places they visited then and now, there's almost no information at all about who Alan Lomax is. Without that yeah. opening, you go into this film and not have a clue who the people that it's about are by the end of it. That's an example of there's another film to be made where you go through and then Shirley Collins and Anne Lomax got in the car and went here. Yeah. Which is not the film we made. <laughs> I just want to briefly mention the musicians who we do see in the film. And we're not talking about the archival audio right. footage. We're talking about the contemporary musicians who are the offspring, if you will, of those musicians. Not in the literal sense, but in the spiritual musical sense. So there's the duo, uh, the local honeys. You piss in my boot and you tell me it's rain. You smell like money on land you reclaim. Top off that sludge bottle. Anna and Elizabeth. The Como Mamas. Yeah, who are literal descendants. And Jimmy Edmonds, who's a luthier, but he'd been playing the fiddle with Uncle Wade Ward, who was someone who Alan had recorded many, many years ago. How many of these people did you know about before the trip and how many were just recommended to you as you were driving along? So Anna and Elizabeth, who were the first band we see, who were kind of sort of combined like a New York hipster aesthetic with kind of Virginian aesthetic. We knew who they were. They played at a screening of the Ballad of Shirley Collins and then we just jumped on that as an opportunity to interview them. The local honeys were suggested to us as we were going. Jimmy Edmonds, we just happened to walk into his guitar making workshop on the drive out of town from Galax, Virginia. And then while we were there figured out that he was the grandson just literally like just something just clicks in my brain figured out that he was the grandson of a guy in the Lomax tapes who Lomax recorded in the same town no not in the same town in another town in Virginia who played Bonaparte's retreat for them And when asked 
what it was had no idea. He had no idea who Napoleon Bonaparte was or where the song had come from or what it meant or anything like that. So, And so we'd always loved that bit of the archive. And then just randomly, we'd walked into this guy's studio who was his grandson. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was all sorts of stuff like that. And same with the Como Mamas. They just were introduced to us by someone in Como, Mississippi. And then I kind of figured out that they were the grandchildren of the Pratchers, who were this family who'd owned land in Mississippi. <laughs> early for people in the black community and who were played this sort of American country music, black country music, which I absolutely love, you know, and, lo- and loved in those early tapes, the Lomax thing. So, so again, that was just pure serendipity. Was we, we actually went there to find people connected to the fife and drum players, which is this really, really old tradition where you make a reed pipe and you make drums and you make them out of materials in your area and then you use them to kind of create this sort of trance-like drumming music. all the way through to kind of hip hop and beyond there's just a massive amounts of luck basically you know it's just the uh, all the, the fates aligned didn't they I mean it wasn't it wasn't you know because had we not really really just immersed ourselves in that archive before we went we wouldn't have figured out that this guy that we were talking sure. to was Norman Edmund's grandson the fact that we'd done so much research kind of gave us the opportunity and the same with the Pratches you know that the, the Kama Mamas their, their grandparents they're not the famous people from those tapes they just right, happened yeah, to yeah. recorded a couple of songs with them and then what they're most famous for is that while they were at their house that's when Fred McDowell came and just started playing blues songs that's probably the most famous discovery from that trip mm. I found that whole segment fascinating in the church where the Como Mamas is singing and you, as you were saying one of them reveals that MC Hammer had stolen his beat for this <laughs> from, from a fife and drum band <laughs> that I never would have made that connection. Yeah, no, and you know, and you listen to, you, you know, you go and watch buskers in New York in, in Central Park or something now, you can see just a really clear lineage through all of that and back to African music. Then taking it back to punk as well, you know, white and black musicians when they were, you know, on that trip in the 50s, they were playing instruments that they made themselves, you know, and you don't get yeah, more DIY yeah. than that. There's also the connection to Lonnie Donegan. Skiffle. Because uh, sk- Skiffle is derived from a lot of that folk music. Yeah, and Billy Bragg's written a great book about that. I've heard about that. I think I need to get my hands on that. So, uh, Rob, I think you're a little push for time, aren't you, Rob? So did you want to just quickly talk about how um, the film's been received so far? Whether you've actually yeah. had many screenings and where people can see it, basically? Yeah, I mean, it's a very weird time to be releasing yeah. a film. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it's had a UK cinema release, which was probably 10% of what The Ballad of Shelley Collins did, even though arguably, you know, as a in the run-up to the US presidential elections it's a really really topical film we've just been glad to be able to get it out and get it to absolutely yes especially seeing it's such a lucky little film in the UK it will be on Sky next year in the spring you know that's a positive and that in Ireland they've got the rights to Ireland as well and then in the States we'll just have to see because it was 
shot during the 2018 midterms. We really wanted to get it out before this election. Yeah. yeah. But in America, and that, that hasn't happened. We're meant to have been there now, basically, on tour, kind of doing something similar to the Dallas Shelley Collins release. But we'll see what happens next year. But hopefully it has a life in America as well. You know? uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, whichever way the election swings, I think this is still yeah. going to be as relevant either yeah, way. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have a few more screenings this year as well in the UK. That'd be good, yeah. Any interest from my neck of the planet? Uh, so it's on it's on Skylights in New Zealand, probably at the moment, actually, but, but not those Australia. Kiwi, oh, those Kiwis get everything. <laughs> <laughs> have you got anything, any sort of current projects that are sort of bubbling away? Yeah, we, we've got loads of current projects bubbling away but whether any of them will ever yes. happen <laughs> fair enough yeah it's, it's, it's probably better not to say anything because otherwise let's not jinx anything <laughs> yeah. yeah but thank you it's really great that was really really lovely to talk to you about yeah thank you rob that's been fantastic thank you so much really super appreciated we wish you full success with future screenings of the film and may this lead to other wonderfully interesting projects we'll have to have you back thank you very much anytime and i just just want to say rob as well you know I, i'm not trying to butter you up or anything i did genuinely love both films i think that fantastic pieces of work thank you very much thank you so much for being on the show we'll take a break now and then bernie and i will be back to talk about what's happening on episode 79 of see here Thanks once again to Rob Curry for taking the time to speak to us here and see here. And actually, I want to give one more shout out is to our great friend in Belfast, Mr. Colin McCowan. Up until a few weeks ago, I didn't know about the existence of these films. Colin had sent me a note saying, listen, you great hellion. Why don't you go speak to my friend Rob about these two films? And I thought, oh, I better look into this. As you can hear, Bernie and I were so completely enamored with these two films and Rob was a terrific interview subject so our love to you Colin thank you so much for thinking of us and sending that recommendation our way and to be fair actually Colin is always sending recommendations to us for films to watch we'll be taking a lot more of that on board thank you so much Colin He's the, uh, the un- unofficial fourth member of See Here. He's like the Zeppo. Oh, no, hang on. That's not, compl- <laughs> that's not complimentary. Never mind. So next month will be November of 2020, uh, episode 79 of See Here. We have a couple of irons in the fire. I'm trying to get an interview for a film that I think will be absolutely terrific, but it may take a little bit longer than I anticipate to get. So not 100% sure yet whether we're going to get. So keep an eye on the See Here Facebook page. And I will put up indication there as to what it is that we're going to cover. We might just do an old-fashioned film review like we do and hopefully get Tim back. Might finally get around to uh, Rattle and Hum. Who knows? Yeah, that's Tim's favourite film, as you all know. As, As I understand, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we can't do Rattle and Hum, hopefully we might get this other film that I'm thinking of, which, in all seriousness, would just be absolutely terrific. I don't want to even hint anything, so... But keep an eye on the Facebook page. If you want to write to us... Please feel free to do so. See here podcast at gmail.com, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast.
podcast instagram and we are see here podcast so look us up and follow us there and you should be definitely listening to any number of the brilliant podcasts in the pantheon podcast range our thanks go once again to the wonderful people who run that wonderful network if you go to pantheonpodcasts.com or if you subscribe to pantheon podcasts in your podcast app of choice then every podcast episode of every podcast in their network comes into your feed so we're just another podcast in that feed and you can catch everything that they do so we recommend that you uh, get onto that bernie any final thoughts well, hopefully when we speak to you next month, we might be living in a slightly kinder, gentler world. Hmm. So to all my American friends out there listening to this, do the right thing. Vote. And, uh, yeah, vote and vote for the right person. Yes. Or vote for the lesser of two evils, perhaps, is a slightly more pessimistic way, but you know what to do. Either way, go out and vote. We try not to get too political on this show, but we've just spoken about a couple of films that have a definite political angle. So if you're still listening this far, go out and vote. And that notwithstanding, listen to some great music, watch some great films, watch some great music-related films. And be nice to each other. Please be nice to each other. We love you. Hugs and kisses. All the best. Cheers. Bye. And always leave Paul from behind. Ain't it hard, hard, hard to be a farmer? A farmer, farmer, farmer. Ain't it hard, hard, hard? You can't get your money when it's due. You know, a farmer around a white man will walk across the field. The farmer stumble up. On the white man hill, the white man cussed and the farmer grinned. He knocked the poor farmer up under his chin. I wanted hard, hard, hard to be a farmer. A farmer, 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 ain't it hard, hard, hard? You can't get your money when you do. You know, a farmer and a white man are waking on a freight. The goal's out soon, but the guests and late. The white man takes us. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.